Hallows Church. As you're having taking a seat, we also encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Ephesians chapter 5, to the passage that was just read for us. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. Utilize that resource to navigate this book. It's, it's a big book. There's a lot in it. And over the past several months, we've been walking through this little letter called Ephesians. This was a letter written by a guy named Paul to a church in an ancient city known as Ephesus. And he's writing to this group of Christians to basically clarify and to elevate their understanding of what it means to be the church together. And what is God's purpose? What is God's plan for the church? And what we've been exploring over the past several months is that the church is where God's grace is made visible to the watching world. That's the big idea behind this series, that the way you and I fellowship with one another, the way you and I worship Jesus, the way you and I seek to bless the city of Seattle and beyond that the world around us, uh, the way that we go about living the Christian life together is designed by God to make His grace, that is, His free merited favor, visible to the watching world. That people should be able to look in the church and see that's what grace looks like. Because I see people loving each other, loving one another unconditionally. That's what grace looks like. I see people giving generously of their time and their talents and their treasures towards the things of God in this world. They should be able to look at the church and say, that's what grace looks like as forgiveness is flowing freely and frequently between sinners who mess up a lot and step on each other's toes and offend one another. And yet, the way we're able to forgive one another and the way we're able to allow love to cover a multitude of sins all of those dynamics uh, make God's grace tangible, touchable, concrete in the world that is. And we follow this together in route to the world that is to come as we look forward to the day when all is made new and we worship Jesus free of sin, free of suffering, free of sickness, free of death forever and always, which is what we're going to really celebrate and go after next week when we square up on the resurrection. So Ephesians chapter 5, as you find your way there in your Bibles, we're going to be picking up here in verse 1. And I'm a father of three kids, and that can put me in a precarious position uh, for a lot of reasons. Now, I have an 8-year-old, a 4-year-old, and a 3-year-old, and the influence that I have in my kids' life uh, can sometimes be quite precarious because they hear me say things or they see me do things, uh, and then they will start imitating those things, and I don't want them to imitate everything that they hear me say or everything that they see me do. Not too long ago when I stubbed my toe and in frustration I let out a word. Uh, my son heard me later. He was playing a game called Trouble and he was losing that game in frustration. He started uh, voicing that same word. It was not a fine moment in my life and, and I know uh, it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks and so there's a lot of work to be done in me. I need a lot, a lot of grace. And so my son would imitate me by what he heard, and sometimes that can be a problem. Uh, but then there are other moments in my, in my parenting, in my fatherhood, where my kids imitating me is, is very precious. It's very special to me. One of my fondest memories of Delaney was just when she was turning, I think, somewhere between one and two. And, and when we first started the Hallows Church, we launched our, our gatherings and things down at the Fremont Baptist Church down Fremont Ave. And, and we were very frugal, very scrappy during that time. We didn't spend a lot of money on things for us or anything like that. So we, we just built a lot of things ourselves and did a lot of things ourselves. And there was a guy named Wes Moore in our church. Many of you know him. He, he built a stage that would serve as kind of a platform for whoever would be teaching and preaching on a Sunday in our worship services. And it was just this wood, nothing special, this wood platform that elevated whoever was speaking about six to eight inches so people could see him and, and all of that. And 
And it wasn't the prettiest piece of wood, so we would cover it with a black cloth. And every week I would stand on this platform and I would talk really fast and I'd wave my hands in the air like this, which is what I tend to do. And, and then there was one day I was sitting in the living room and my daughter walked over to this black box that's in our living room and she took the lid off. And she brought the lid, stuck it in the middle of the living room and stood up on it, elevated her about an inch, inch and a half. And she starts waving her arms in the air. She starts speaking gibberish. And I'm wondering, what's wrong with my daughter? Like, I started to call Dolly Kim, not sure if something like misfired in her mind. I, I didn't know what was going on. And then it dawned on me that my daughter was imitating me. She was doing the things that she sees me do week in and week out, standing on a black stage, talking with my hands, speaking gibberish sometimes, and, and she was just imitating that and brought me a lot of joy. It brought a lot of warmth to my soul. But when you step into this passage, we're keyed into all this dynamic of imitation. And we're told right off the bat in verse 1 that we, as followers of Jesus, as members of the church, we are to imitate God. But we're not just to imitate God in a generic fashion, we're to imitate God in a specific fashion. It says, imitate God as dearly loved children. That's one of the best descriptions you're ever going to read about what it means to be a Christian. You want to know what a Christian is? A Christian is a child of God. That's who we are in Christ. When we recognize that God treats us on the basis of His grace through faith in Jesus, when He brings us into His family and calls us His kids, that's a heartwarming, heart-changing reality. And so we are the children of God, and as such, we are to imitate our Father. We are to be like Him in many ways. But the challenge is, how do you imitate a God that you can't see? How do you imitate God who is invisible, God who is spirit? Where do you look? Where do you turn to figure out what it looks like to imitate God or to, to say the things that He says and to do the things that He does? And this is where you find Jesus. And it's actually where Paul goes next when he moves into verse 2. He turns the corner from talking about imitating God as, as dearly loved children, and then he starts talking about Christ. Because ultimately, if we're going to learn what it means to imitate God, what it means to say what he says and do what he does, if we want to know what God is like, there's one person that we look to. We look to Jesus. This is why in John chapter 1, at the beginning of that gospel, that is this story of Jesus that the Apostle John would write and tell us uh, at the beginning of that, it says, no eye has ever seen God. Nobody's ever laid their eyes on the reality of who God is. But then he goes on to say, but this Jesus, this Jesus makes him known. This Jesus reveals him. Saying, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to see God, you look in Jesus' direction. He would say a very similar thing would be said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, when, when we're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if we're going to talk about imitating God, we have to move to Jesus, because Jesus gives us a tangible expression of what God is like. Jesus makes God concrete. Jesus brings God down to earth so that we can see Him and interact with Him and understand, okay, what is God like? Oh, that's what Jesus does, therefore that's what God is like. And so this is where the passage moves. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Verse 2, and walk in love. And then he qualifies this love. What does it mean to walk in love? He says, do this as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Now today's, the, today's what's known as Palm Sunday. This is the beginning of Passion Week taking us towards Good Friday, where we focus up on the death of Jesus, and celebrating on Easter Sunday, or Resurrection Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. But today is what's known as Palm Sunday, and it's the day that kind of kick-started Passion Week. 
This was the day when Jesus uh, got on the back of a colt or a donkey, and he rolled that colt in, that colt into the city of Jerusalem. And when Jesus was walking or riding this colt into Jerusalem, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was going into that city with his eyes wide open. Nobody was forcing him to Jerusalem. Nobody was driving him to Jerusalem. Jesus went voluntarily and he went willfully into the city. And you know as well as I do that the reason Jesus would enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is because Jesus would soon give up his life on the cross. That he entered Jerusalem specifically to die. He knew he was going to be crucified, and yet he moved in that direction anyway. So if we're going to talk about what it means to imitate God and what it means to look to Jesus and discover what does it mean to, to follow Christ or to walk in love, well, it means to see Jesus' example of self-giving love. It means to imitate the self-giving love of Jesus that is shown us in the gospel. Because when Jesus goes to the cross, he didn't just go there to die any kind of death. He went there to die a specific kind of death. He went to the cross to die for our sins in our place, so that our sins could be forgiven, our lives could be changed, so that we might be brought into the family of God. Jesus gave himself in love for you and I. This is why you find this horizontal dimension in verse 2, where it says uh, that Christ gave himself up for us. He went to the cross for us or on our behalf. So there's a, verti- uh, a horizontal dimension to the love that Jesus showed us, but then there's also a vertical dimension mentioned in this passage as well. Because right after it says that Christ gave himself for us, he also says that he gave himself as a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. In other words, Jesus went to the cross because he wanted to give you and me love. And he also went to the cross because he wanted to show love to his heavenly Father. Everything about the cross is a demonstration of this self-giving love. And if you and I are going to walk in love, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to imitate our Heavenly Father, then we too are going to give ourselves to self-giving love. This means we're going to learn to love one another in self-giving, sacrificial ways. This also means that we're going to learn to love our God as an expression of our worship and an expression of our adoration, offering up our bodies, so to speak, as living sacrifices to God. This is our response to all that Jesus has done for us. So imitating God and walking in love, it's all about self-giving love. That's what we're getting after. Now, I know this is a challenge for us because we don't love very well. Love is hard. Love hurts, so to speak. When you put yourself out there and you start loving people, you, you might get taken advantage of. You might be uh, find yourself in vulnerable situations where you're not protected very well and you're taking risks in your efforts to love other people or even in your obedience to God. There's moments where you have to make sacrifices and you have to deny yourself and you have to do hard things all in love to your God and in love to those around you. C.S. Lewis picked up on this really well in some of his writings, one book in particular called The Four Loves, where he describes this dynamic of love, and I want to share his words with you. This is what Lewis says about why love is hard. He said, you know, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. 
Lock it up safely in the casket of your selfishness. And in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will not change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from the dangers of love is hell. Love is hard because it requires vulnerability. Love is hard because it involves risk. Love is hard because it is all about self-giving. It is all about sacrifice. This is the love that we were given in the gospel, and this is the love that we are to reflect in the church. Now, many of you perhaps are familiar with something called the golden rule. The golden rule is that statement, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And for some of us, we kind of boil our Christianity down to that one statement. And we say, I'm going to live by the golden rule. Do unto others as I would have them do unto me. But that rule in and of itself, that bare-boned imperative, it has no blood. There's no heat to it. There's really no energy to it. If you're going to live your life according to the golden rule, you're going to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give myself to someone in love so that in turn they will give of themselves in love to me. But then you find yourself doing that and then the other person doesn't reciprocate. The other person doesn't respond in kind. They don't respond with grace and goodness. And you're wondering, well, well, what's the point in this unilateral movement of love? Like, I can't keep giving myself in these ways to care about those around me if, if it's not being reciprocated. And you're living by the golden rule and it's running you ragged because the golden rule in and of itself is a bare-boned imperative that has no blood, it has no life to it. But if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, there is a greater rule for you to live by. There is a better rule for you and I to live by. Not so much the golden rule. What you and I live by is what's called the gospel rule. The gospel rule says, do unto others as God has done unto you. This is what Jesus is getting after in his famous Lord's Prayer when he says, I want you to forgive others as as you have been forgiven. I want you to love others as you have been loved. The gospel rule says, I'm going to do unto others as God in Christ has done unto me. So if you want to learn how to give yourself and love to God and love to others, you first have to let yourself be loved. You have to let yourself be loved by Jesus in the gospel. And until you see yourself loved that way, you stand no chance in exercising self-giving love. Your life is not going to be swept up in that purpose. Your life is not going to be consumed with the passion of self-giving love. This passion that I believe sits at the heart of the very universe. I mean, when you think about who God is, we, we use a word to describe God in Christianity, that God is triune, He is Trinity. This means that God is, we worship one God who eternally exists in three persons. That He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And one of the things, one of the most remarkable realities about who God is, is is that self-giving love sits at the heart of the Trinity. It is the Trinity's signature. What it means is, is that God the Father gives Himself in love to God the Son. God the Son gives him love Himself in love to God the Father. And the Holy Spirit is enjoying the revelry in the Godhead as love is flowing from one person to the next forever and always in the Godhead. And then when God created you and I in His image, He stamped us, He wired us to be a reflection of that reality. So that we would give of ourselves in love for one another. And we would give of ourselves in love to God. That's the purpose for which we were created. And so we want to see ourselves loved by God in the gospel. We want to see God's self-giving love towards us. So that self-giving love may swirl up out of us and we can become the people God not only created us to be, 
but the people God is redeeming and recreating us to be in Christ and the church. But there's a challenge in this passage because the opposite of self-giving love, the opposite of self-giving love is what might be called self-gratifying lusts. And the problem with sin and the problem with fallen humanity is that self-giving love, that's not our instinct, that's not our bent. Our instinct, our bent, is more described by self-gratifying lusts. And so what we do as fallen creatures, as sinful creatures, is that we recognize that God has put a lot of gifts into His creation. But we take these gifts, and rather than letting these gifts serve the purpose of self-giving love, we turn these gifts, we twist them, we distort them, and we use them to gratify ourselves, our own lusts, our own passions, our own desires that are detached from the reality of who God is. And so Paul goes on to identify, he basically takes, puts three things in the crosshairs in verse, verses 3 and 4, and he identifies these and says, look, we need to identify what self-gratifying lusts look like because that is the opposite of self-giving love. And there are three things you're going to see beginning in verse 3 that speak to this dynamic. The first thing that you see there in verse 3, he says, but sexual immorality and impurity. If you want to state that positively, the gift that's being acknowledged in this passage is the gift of sex. And God designed sex to serve the purpose of self-giving love. But in sin, sex now serves the purpose of gratifying our lusts and gratifying our desires. And the Bible has a lot to say about sexual immorality. That word translated sexual immorality is kind of a drunk drawer term. There's a lot that goes in it. It's such a big idea and a big concept in the scriptures. And so much kind of, is, is kind of falls into the drawer of sexual immorality that... It's, it's harder for me to try to, I'm not going to try to list out all the things that that thing speaks to. I think a better approach would be to try to turn it on its head and explain a little bit about why the, the sacredness of sex. And when you see the sacredness of sex and what God designed sex for, then you can make your own list in discovering all the things that fall into the drawer of sexual immorality. See, the reason when you come to the beginning of the story, the beginning of the Bible, you have God creating mankind and Adam and Eve in his image. He places them in paradise, Eden, and he gives them free reign, free rule over everything. Say, I want you to enjoy life. I want you to enjoy me, and I want you to enjoy one another. And you come to the end of the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and God tells them this is, well, after setting them up in a relationship, a very special relationship, he says, this is why man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. He's speaking there of marriage. And then as you trace this idea of marriage all throughout the scriptures, you get into Proverbs 2.17, and a spouse is described as being a covenant partner. And we know that marriage is a type of covenant, is a commitment that two people are making to one another before God and before the people of God to love one another exclusively, to be with one another intimately, and to be wholly and completely devoted to one another. Now, one of the ways that that covenant of marriage is, is consummated is through sexual intimacy. It's through the sexual union of those two married persons. So when you think about marriage, marriage being this merger of two individuals into a single legal, social, economic unity where they share everything in common and they do that together, committing themselves for life to one another. 
And then you recognize the role sex plays in that. So sex serves the purpose of, of really bringing that out and in a way that is unlike any other thing that the couple will experience. But in sex, a married couple is able to say, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. And it's in that context of a covenant commitment made before God and before others, what we would call marriage. It is in that context of security where the man and the woman are able to enjoy one another in absolute vulnerability, but with the complete security of that covenant commitment. And it is there where the marriage begins to go to a deeper level of intimacy and a richer level of experience of, of oneness. Sex is designed to serve that. And so when we talk about the sacredness of sex, we're talking about a gift that God has given humanity to be utilized in the context of a covenant commitment that is to bring these people together and to illustrate their union unlike any other thing or any other experience that they will have in this world. But what we have done with sex, we have... We've taken it, we've distorted it, and we've twisted it. So that now we live in a culture that says, okay, sex isn't a sacred covenant. Sex is more of an appetite. And we live in a culture, in a context that says sex is just an appetite, and if you are hungry, feed yourself. If you are hungry, gratify your appetite. Gratify your desires. It doesn't really matter how that appetite is being met, just let it be met, because it's natural. And no way to compare it to things like eating. But the moment we take sex and we compare it to eating and we treat it like an appetite, all of a sudden sex is going to serve self-gratifying lust. It's not going to serve self-giving love. You see, it's in the context of marriage, in that dynamic where two lovers come together and they say, look, I'm not here just to take from you. I'm not here to get from you. I'm here to give to you. That's the sacredness of sex. I'm here for you. I'm not just here for me. But outside of that context, outside of that covenant, it's all about me. It's all about gratifying our appetite, so to speak. But sex is not just an appetite. Sex is a sacred covenant. It serves the purpose of marriage. And when it is taken outside of that context, that's when things get sideways. That's when you have things like sexual immorality and impurity. That's where you find this drawer being filled with all kinds of other sexual expressions and sexual endeavors that characterize the cultural climate that we are in. But even as I say that, understand that our cultural climate isn't unique in this regard. Humanity's always been like this. We've always taken this gift of sex and used it for self-serving purposes, not self-giving love. It's been a consistent theme all throughout human history. Because this is such an intense gift that people are drawn to and people are prone to misuse and abuse because of the sin that lies within. And so Paul says, look, I want you to understand that there's a great gift that God has given us, the gift of sex. But this gift is oftentimes being twisted and distorted to serve not the purpose of self-giving love, but the purpose of self-gratifying lust. But then there's a second gift that comes up in this passage. Now as he talked about sexual immorality and impurity, he talks about greed. And so you might think about this in terms of money, in terms of God's provisions in our lives. Now, we know that money uh, is just a kind of currency. It's used by every culture in every era of human history, ways to kind of provide culturally defined representations of value and to apply, place value on different things so that human beings can barter and trade and do all those types of things. In 
And so money in and of itself can be a tremendous source of blessing. We can take money, we can take God's provision, and we can use it to show self-giving love. We can become generous people. We can seek to bless people with, with what we've been blessed with. But what happens a lot of times, rather than serving the purpose of self-giving love, we use it to gratify our lusts. And that's what's called greed or covetousness. What that means is, is we get to gain. We don't get to give. We hoard what we have rather than share what we have. And we become greedy. And if you think the Bible has a lot to say about sexual immorality, the Bible has a lot to say about stewardship and money. The Bible has a lot to say about greed because money should serve the purpose of self-giving love, but when it's twisted, when it gets distorted, we use it to gratify our lusts. We use it to go after whatever it is our hearts desire and we'll step over the needs of others in order to get things that we may not need, we just want. And there's a lot of warnings about how destructive that can be. The most classic one, perhaps, is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 9, where Paul is taking up this theme of money, and listen to what he says about it. He says, But those who want to be rich, that is, they have a desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, or they can fall into temptation. They fall into a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires kind of spring up. He says, Which plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice it's the love of money and not money per se, per se, that is the root of all kinds of evil. And then he says, by craving it, that is by lusting after it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That the love of money has drawn people away from Jesus. Paul knows this firsthand because at the end of, I think, 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, Paul's going to name a friend of his a friend of his who journeyed with him all throughout the world, helping him plant churches and serve Jesus. But then we're told that this guy fell back in love with his money and all the stuff that money could give him. And so he pulled out, he bailed out, he left the faith, he abandoned Paul, and it led him down a destructive path, according to Paul. It's this love of money that kept the rich young ruler in the Gospels from following Jesus. When Jesus looked at this man who had all kinds of wealth, and he says, Now I want you to go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. He wasn't saying that because wealth is inherently evil. He was saying that because he knew where this, guy, this guy's heart was. It, was. it was clinging to his stuff, and the man turned around and he walked away from Jesus sad that day. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, I assure you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved. Why is that? Well, because wealth makes us comfortable. Wealth makes us um, self-sufficient. When we have a lot of stuff and a lot of provision, we forget that we need God, and we forget that we are uh, sinful people. We'll equate, okay, my wealth is somehow a blessing from God, and therefore He must favor me because I have all of this. But that's not, your wealth isn't a sure indication of the favor of God in your life. It's just not. And so we don't want to be deceived in thinking that way because then we'll start hoarding stuff and we'll fall in love with money, which can give, which can give energy to all kinds of other evils in our lives. It can be destructive. And so Paul's very, he's issuing a warning here about greed and about our relationship with God's provision, this gift. He's saying, let the gift of money serve the purpose of self-giving love. Don't use it, don't twist it to satisfy, satisfy your lusts. But then there's a third one there that you might not see at first, but it's kind of verse 4, a third gift from God. 
Verse 4, obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. What you find here is what we could call the gift of humor or the gift of wit. That word joking there, it's a beautiful word. It's a word speaking of a, of a, of a clever wit. A clever wit that is consistently recognized as an admirable talent. It's one that it kind of endears ourselves to other people. And you all know funny people. You all know witty people, quick thinkers who can use words well. Now, humor and wit, that can serve the purpose of self-giving love by bringing laughter and joy and life to those around them. It can circulate that type of dynamic, but it can also be used for harm. When we take our wit or we take our sense of humor and we use it in ways that are qualified in verse 4 as obscene or foolish or crude. When, we, when our joking is qualified by those types of adjectives, or adjectives, when our wit is vulgar, when our wit is offensive, all of a sudden we're not using wit, we're not using him, uh, humor to give life, there's a sense in which we're using it to take life from people. Because obscene, vulgar, crude joking, every time those types of things are engaged in, the person issuing those jokes will elevate themselves in the eyes of their hearers, but in order to elevate themselves in the eyes of their hearers, they're going to be stepping on someone to do it. They're going to be rude about the opposite sex. They're going to be rude about uh, one, of the, one of the genders. They're going to say things that are obscene and vulgar to elevate themselves in the eyes of their hearers, but in order to be elevated, somebody else has to be pressed down. That's what happens with obscene, vulgar types of humor. And so even something as, something as uh, small, it seems, as joking is a good gift from God that can serve the purposes of self-giving love. We just have to learn to use it. We have to learn to leverage everything that God gives us, all the good things about His creation, towards loving people and loving Him. Our sex lives, our money and finances and resources, as well as our sense of humor and our wit, the wit about us. And so we want to move in this direction because when you get to verse 5, Paul's going to say some things that, that is going to, um, he, he says some, this is where Paul kind of ratchets up his rhetoric. And he says some very sobering things in this passage. Listen to what he says in verse 5. He says, For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He's saying everyone who is defined by their sexuality or their sexual immorality, everyone who is defined by their stuff and their greed, everyone who is defined by obscene or vulgar or coarse joking, if that defines you, if that is who you are, you will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. As I mentioned earlier, it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So if a lot of that is coming out of you, it may be a sign that your heart hasn't changed it may be a sign that you are still about gratifying your lusts, not giving yourself in love. And he's saying if you're there, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a sober warning there. And then it gets even harder in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments. That is to say, let no one tell you otherwise. Let no one persuade you that your sin isn't a big deal. 
Let no one persuade you that sexual immorality isn't serious. Let no one persuade you that greed isn't serious. Let no one persuade you that obscene or vulgar or crude joking isn't serious. Let no one bring those empty arguments of trying to rationalize and justify the things that you enjoy doing in this world apart from the grace of God in your life. Don't let no one try to deceive you into thinking that they are no big deal. Because if you ever get to the point in your life where sin ceases to be a big deal, then Jesus ceases to be a big deal. When sin ceases to be serious, the gospel ceases to mean anything. And so to elevate sexual purity, sexual morality, the sacredness of sex, to elevate money and resources for the sake of self-giving love, to be able to use our wit and our humor towards giving life, not taking life, elevating that to the standard of God is what makes the gospel the gospel. Because I'm, I assure you, every one of you have missed the mark in your sexuality. You have missed the mark in your greed. You have missed the mark in your use of humor and what you have allowed to entertain you in this world. You have missed the mark. And just because you missed the mark don't mean we lower the standard and we don't talk about these things. Because the moment we lower the standard, the gospel ceases to mean anything. So we don't want to be deceived by empty arguments that would rob the gospel of its power, that would say Jesus' death on the cross really didn't mean anything significant. But then he goes on. He says, let no one deceive you with empty arguments. Here's why. For God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. He says God's wrath is moving towards those who remain obstinate in their sin, who remain resistant to the grace of God in Christ. He's saying God's wrath is moving in their direction, and His wrath cannot be deterred through your rationalizations or through your justifications of why you think a certain sexual exercise is okay, or why you think a certain joke is no big deal, or why you think money should be used in this way or that way against another way. He's saying your rationalizations and your justifications will not satisfy God's wrath as it is coming. That the only way you can escape this coming wrath is by running to Jesus, clinging to the cross. The only way you can escape this reality is by taking refuge in Christ. Then he says in verse 7, therefore do not become their partners. That is, do not, do not identify yourself with sin in the world. Now let's think a little bit about this empty argument dynamic. This empty argument dynamic, there's a woman named Judith E. Brandt who wrote a book called The 50-Mile Rule. And it was subtitled, get this, Your Guide to Infidelity and Extramarital, Extramarital Etiquette. And it sounds funny, but she assures everyone it's not a satire. It's a very serious treatment of how to dignify extramarital affairs. She wrote it back in the early 2000s, 2001, 2002. Then in 2002, she was interviewed by the Chicago Tribune. And the Chicago Tribune was asking her these questions, and I want you to hear her arguments. Listen to what she says. They asked her, what about the ethics and morality of extramarital affairs? She responds, there's a simple answer. Affairs are immoral and wrong, but the reality is that people are having them anyway. So you have to meet people where they are. For a lot of people, morality doesn't end up in it. So if people are doing it anyway, you have to try to mitigate the hard edges. In other words, the standard's too high, people are breaking it anyway, so let's lower the bar. That's what she is saying. It's an empty argument, right? Anytime you have to move the goalposts, your argument is falling flat. Anytime you have to adjust or tweak a standard that God has laid out consistently in the Scriptures, you are engaging in an empty argument. But that's what she's saying here. 
Another question. You say in your book, don't feel guilty. And the questioner asks, that doesn't seem realistic. Her response, guilt is basically something built into society to keep you in line. Have you heard that one before? Guilt is a social construct. It's also an empty argument. Because if you're filling your mind with the truth of the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit is at work within you, guilt can be a gift to you because your guilt can drive you to Jesus. The conviction you feel can drive you to the Gospel. So we don't want to be dismissive of the reality of guilt in our lives. And we certainly don't want to embrace her empty argument. This is what she says. If you are going to, if you are going about your business in a discreet way and you are continuing to take care of your wife and most importantly your children, there is no reason to feel guilty. It's etiquette, right? Another question. Say a friend said they were considering getting involved in an extramarital affair and asked for your advice, what would you tell them? Answer, the advice I would give them is that it is based on your needs. Self-gratification, that's what we do, self-gratifying lust. This is the argument of the world that we live in. It's all about you. It's all about your needs. When it comes to sex, money, and humor, it's all about you. And this is what she's saying. The advice I would give is that it's based on your needs. People enter into affairs for many reasons. It's not always just sex. There are emotional needs. As far as I'm concerned... Affairs can serve some short-term tactical needs in a long-term relationship strategy. It's an empty argument. It's the type of argument that exists in the world that is. And you and I have to be on guard lest we get swept up in the zeitgeist, get swept up in the spirit of the age in which we live. This is what Paul's saying. Do not be deceived by empty arguments. Think well about the reality of who God is. Think well about the sacredness of life in all things. Think well about the center of the universe being self-giving love and and let your life be shaped by it. Now, these were questions asked by an interviewer from the Chicago Tribune. I would encourage you to think about what would it look like if God was giving you an interview? What if God called you into an interview and he began to ask you questions relating, related to how you think about sexual immorality? or related to how you use money, or related to how you engage him? Or what if God was giving the interview and he was asking you questions such as this? What rationalization would you give him to justify the things that you think may be right or the things that you are too easily entertaining? If we think about God giving the interview, I think we're going to be stunned silent. And I think we're going to be brought into a sobriety of thinking that says, look, God is holy, I am not. God is right, I am not. And when you recognize that, you run to Jesus and you want to install Him as King. You want Jesus to become the King of your life. And when He becomes King, He begins to set the agenda. He begins to help you learn what it means, the difference between right and wrong, the difference between what is holy and unholy. What is the standard of God in all things? You enthrone Christ as King and all of a sudden you live your life under His reign and His rule. And all of a sudden you're releasing control that says, okay, I'm going to determine for myself what is right and wrong. I'm going to set the goalposts where I want them. I'm going to determine what is sexually immoral. I'm going to determine the the best use of money and resources. I'm going to determine what jokes and humor should be about. No, you're going to say, okay, Jesus, you're going to set this agenda. You're going to get shaped to all of this. And as as Christ reigns in your life, you turn your attention to the Scriptures and you seek to hear His voice speaking through the pages of the Bible. And as you do that, you're constantly going to be, you're constantly going to come back to this, okay, God's standards are really, really high. I don't measure up to them. I need Jesus. 
And you're going to become a gospel-believing person. You're going to become a gospel-treasuring person. You're going to be someone who embraces the gospel because you need, you desperately need the gospel. There's an interesting word used at the end of this passage in verse 7. Therefore, do not become their partners. It's an interesting word because it's only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's earlier in the book of Ephesians. And what Paul's getting after here, he's saying you are, you are no longer partners with those who identify as sexually immoral or greedy or, or obscene in their humor. That's not you anymore. You are, are a partner of a new reality. And you see this earlier in chapter 3, verse 6. Listen to what is, you might turn one page back in your Bible. This is where you see this word pop up. Verse 6, the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners, there it is again, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, if you want to grow in self-giving love, you've got to remember your partnership. That you are no longer in partnership with self-gratifying love. That's not who you are anymore. You are now a partner in the promises of God through the gospel. A new reality defines you. And in the church, we become a new people. And we go about sex differently. We go about money differently. We go about humor differently. We do all things differently because we have a new partnership. We are members of a new people. We are a new humanity. And so as the church, we live out this distinction. We embrace this partnership, refusing to carry out our partnership with sin anymore. And all of a sudden, we in the church become people who are passionate about self-giving love. And so that's what we go after. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider this passage well, to think well about the truths that this text contains. Would you remind us of who we are in Christ? I pray that you would give us grace to realize the partnership that we have in your promises. Help us to see ourselves as a new humanity, a new society in the world that is, so that we would embrace your gifts in a different way and that your gifts would find their their right place and their right space in us and all around us, that your, your gifts would be used by us for the purposes of self-giving love. Holy Spirit, would you instruct us in these matters so that we would know how to apply all of this in ways that would glorify you and would bring great good to everyone around us. God, we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Now, one of the reasons why we partake of the Lord's Supper every week is because the Lord's Supper recalibrates our hearts so that we are reminded of what self-giving love looks like. Every time you go to the table, you're reminded this is the body of Christ given for you as you take the bread. You dip it in the cup, you're reminded of the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And the table just preaches the sermon of self-giving love week in and week out so that our hearts may be recalibrated and we can be reminded, yes, this is who we are. In Christ, we are people of self-giving love. That's what we want to go after. That's what the purpose we want to serve with all the gifts that God gives us in our lifetime. And so we're going to open up the table for you to go and let your heart be recalibrated along those lines. If, if you need to take some time before going to the table and just pray and maybe confess some sins, if there are things you need to repent of before approaching the table, I encourage you to do so. Take this time, let it be yours. And but when you are ready, approach the table and Allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you through what goes down there. So the table is open for you to go at your own pace. The rest of us will be worshiping through song as, as we fill it. Thanks.